0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1848, a wave of revolutions swept across Europe, from Sicily to Paris, Berlin to Vienna. But what sparked this cascade of unrest? And how can we explain its apparent synchronicity? Historian Christopher Clarke's latest book, Revolutionary Spring, sets out to tackle these questions and examine the consequences of revolution throughout the continent across the following decades. Matt Elton caught up with him to find out
3: more. Christopher, thank you so much for being with us today um, to talk about your fantastic new book on the revolutions of 1848. You write that those revolutions were the only true European revolution that there has ever been, and we shall unpick some of that in a minute. But for people who might not know, uh, in which nation did this activity take place?
4: Well, the revolutions, um, where they started is still a matter of controversy, but but in 1847, there was already a civil war between liberal and conservative cantons in Switzerland, which which had revolution-like characteristics and produced a new nation state, effectively, a new Swiss state based on a new constitution. And then in January, the revolution broke out in Sicily, in Palermo, and then in Naples, uh, two of the major cities of what was then called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. And then um, there there were already tumults happening, you know, demonstrations demonstrations and protests and so on happening right across the continent and then came the really big news the revolution in in february in paris at the uh, last week in the last week of february which um, led to the, the flight of the king from Paris. He, he fled to England and the collapse of the French monarchy and the creation of a, a new um, provisional government and eventually of, of the so-called Second Republic. And after that, really, there's a sort of, you, the, the revolution enters a sort of fusion phase where there are chain reactions of uprisings, Vienna, Berlin, Budapest, Bucharest, and in, in Wallachia, and it just goes on and on and on. So it, it kind of cascades across the continent.
3: And we should talk uh, in a bit about that cascade, why that happened, the impact it had. But first of all, I thought we should spend a bit of time talking a bit about what we need to understand about the world of the 19th century uh, and the decades before these revolutions in order to make sense of what happened next. Was poverty a key factor in the 19th century in understanding the kind of later events?
4: Poverty was was the question number one. It was the main source of... Panic. In fact, I think we can speak of a sort of social panic around the question of poverty, though what the, the term people used at the time was not poverty as such. They spoke of pauperization, for armung, pauperisierung, pauperization, and so on. And I mean, there are lots of different versions of it. And uh, what they meant by that was, you know, poverty was something that had always been with human societies. There was no known society where there haven't been poor people. But what worried uh, contemporaries in the 1830s and 40s was something else, a sort of systematic impoverishment of large parts of society, including large groups such as artisans in certain sectors. Weaving was a particularly, particularly vulnerable one who had previously been able to make a living by working, but who who were now still working all the hours that God sends, but were not um, able to make both ends meet, couldn't feed their children on the income from their work. So that's really one of the chief sources of anxiety in the urban context is this this worry about the impoverishment of the working poor. Uh, The poor are getting poorer, and people worry about how far this process can go before it starts to eat at the bonds that hold society together.
3: One of the ways in which this concern manifested itself is a new form of social reporting, particularly during the 1840s. Did that reporting emerge from anywhere particular and did it draw any common conclusions?
4: Well, this reporting, which one can think of as the sort of the the discourse or the literature of the social question with a capital S and a capital Q, it's absolutely everywhere in the Europe of the 1830s and especially of the 40s. And, where it came from originally is difficult to say. It takes off in the 30s. Um, it's related to advances in statistics. People start thinking in terms of averages rather than uh, simply adding everything up. There, there's a growing interest in average life expectancy, for example. Why is it that the poorest live such a much shorter time than the wealthiest? Um, why are there some streets where the average age of death is 37 and other streets in the same time where the average date of death is 72? Um, people start to wonder about this and around these questions emerges a sort of you know a body a corpus of reports and pamphlets and tracts and analyses and, and you know treatises which delight in precise description. There's a lot of description, and it's very important. Very important to these descriptions is the element of witness. You know, Engels wrote a, a book on the condition of the English working classes, um, but he says "aus eigener Anschauung" is the is the subtitle, written from my own observations. And this is the case with everyone. They're they're all going. They're walking into into poor people's dwellings. They're going to stand by the doors of factories. Factories watching huddles of children turn up in in, in mud and rain with scarcely any appropriate clothing, going into work, you know, 10, 12, 13 hours at the looms, and so on. So they're actually observing and talking to the people that they're writing about. And that that becomes such a you know such a powerful genre. I mean, everybody's reading this, and the that it actually overleaps the boundary between faction and fiction. It it becomes a fictional genre, and one of the most famous deployers of that language of precise description in a fictional setting is Eugène Sue, a, Pari, a Parisian writer who writes a, a, a serialized novel, a bit like the novels of Dickens. I mean, everything was happening in serials in the nineteenth century, and uh, in the and in this serialised novel, which is called The Mysteries of Paris, he he places a number of rather absurd sort of larger than life romantic characters in this environment of, you know, of narrow streets, filthy hovels, stinking dank beds, broken furniture, dirty children and so on.
3: You spend the sort of opening third of the book setting the pieces in place, I suppose, um, before the revolutions themselves start what do we need to understand about the political universe of the 19th century to make sense of this? Because some of the terms might seem familiar. There's terms like liberalism, radicals. Do they map onto our present day understandings or do we need to shift our understanding of the political world of the period?
4: That's a really good question. They do sometimes, I mean, they, they, they do map onto our understanding in the sense that, you know, our world is born out of that world. I mean, there's a, there's a genealogical relationship between us and them if, if we're talking now about, you know, Western Europe or, or about Europe as a whole. But nevertheless, the differences are also very striking. For example, there are no parties there's no so there are no socialist parties there are no liberal parties no conservative parties so there are people we would like to call conservatives and liberals and radicals or socialists but they don't often use that word about themselves so what's interesting about the the political environment of the of, of the period before these french the, these revolutions of 1848 is the lack of clearly delineated formations, and the fact that everybody is on the move, everybody's reasoning themselves into new positions as they go along. Scarcely anybody stays put. So people we call liberals may begin as conservatives and work themselves through to a liberal position. Liberals move towards radical positions, and we also find radicals who move back towards liberal and conservative positions. So everybody's on the move, everybody's, it's better to think of them really, uh, instead of in party parties or arranged from right to left, it's better to think of them like people in canoes crossing an archipelago of islands who are just moving, uh, making journeys which they improvise as they go along.
3: So into this sort of rich, heady brew of political confusion or movement, are there any other key ingredients that you think we should throw into the mix to help understand what happens? Is religion an important factor? Are ideas of freedom important?
4: People are talking and thinking about freedom all the time, and they're very concerned about the about the power of of traditional sovereigns. I mean, this is still a continent which is dominated by monarchy, the institutions of monarchy. There are kings or king-like sovereigns in almost all of these states, and there are a couple of republics. Switzerland is one of them, but that, that, that they are in the very small minority, and in most cases, you have monarchies sometimes with no parliament whatsoever and, and where there are no parliaments there are often are local assemblies of one kind or another but they really represent uh, the the local you know the local elites rather than the people as a whole. Uh, where there are parliaments the franchise is very small so in France for example there was a, a French parliament and there was even a French constitution this is the Chart of 1814 revised after the revolution of 1830 um, to, to make it slightly more liberal but I mean even in constitutional France the the franchise the enfranchised population was less than three percent of the of the population as a whole so we're talking about nano franchises tiny elites um which if they if the right to vote exists at all um, have the right to vote so these are you know societies in which power is very concentrated but in which civil society has developed sophisticated critical networks and these critical networks are becoming increasingly alienated from this very concentrated power structure and a starting to pick it apart and find fault with it and um and mobilize against it
3: as you set out at the start this story obviously spans a huge geographical scope so these are obviously complex diverse stories but can we identify any sort of key common factors or milestones in the path of revolution in the years before 1848
4: well, there are prior tumults. I mean, you can think of this as an age of revolutions. That's the title of a book by Jonathan Sperber, and it's also being used by Eric Hobsbawm. So, I mean, it's uh, the the notion that this is, um, and also there's a book, new book about 1848 by Claire Pettit, which makes this point, that, there, that there's something very sequential about these revolutions. There's 1789, which is... We call it the French Revolution for good reason because it did break out in France and it didn't really have produced sympathy revolutions in other locations. Well, not in on the European continent. It did in Haiti, for example, but not on the European continent. But the 1830 revolution, uh, which breaks out in Paris, does have a sort of cascading effect uh, on a much smaller scale in 1848. But, you know, it leaps over the border into Belgium and a revolution breaks out in Brussels and that produces the Belgian nation state, which breaks away from the Kingdom of the United Netherlands it had been sort of locked into a union with the with what we now call Holland or the Netherlands in the north. Uh, so that that's important and consequential. And there are lesser outbreaks of, of um, upheaval in in the Italian states. I forgot to mention a quite important sequence of, of um, out- outbreaks of political unrest that occurs in the early 20s. In 1820, a revolution happens in Spain. And there's the so-called um, liberal triennium for three years, a liberal movement which has come to... Power by means of this revolution of eighteen twenty control Spain, and there are sympathy revolutions in in um, Naples and in Piedmont in the north of Italy and in Portugal, and so on. so there is this you know history of prior tumults, which everybody has they're all they've all got sort of if you like, like old films, you know images from these prior tumults flickering in the backs of their heads, and there's that remembered script of you know, what you do when a revolution break up, breaks out. So everyone knows in 1848 that when a revolution happens, the first thing you do is build barricades. So there's a sort of language and a script of revolution which everybody shares. And in that way, I suppose the, the prior outbreaks of violence, or, or not, not just of violence, but of political um, protest, you know, do inform what happens in 1848 and, and prepare the, the ground for it.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello.
0: This call is being translated.
3: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
2: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend.
2: Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije.
0: You know what I said.
1: Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
3: We talked about poverty. I was struck, particularly given recent events here in Britain, by how important food and food shortages seem to be in this story. Can you talk us through that dimension of things?
4: Yeah, it's a very interesting problem because, uh, and actually, I was I was very struck writing the book. Um, though it only dawned on me really in, towards the end of writing the book that that uh, at, at the parallels or the resonances between the supply chain problems that they faced, and you know, we once again entered an era when supply chains seem vulnerable. And when I was growing up, that was never the case. There were never grain shocks or you know, courgette famines. It was completely un, unheard of. But now we do have this. Uh, we we are increasingly uh, aware. Of the vulnerability of our supplies, and that was very much the case for eighteen for the for the the, the European world of the first half of the nineteenth century. Uh, the problem wasn't that there wasn't enough food to go around. The, the the amount of food produced was actually outstripping the growth in the population by about hundred percent. I mean, it was about food was growing about twice as fast as um, as the population was. But the trouble was that this. Ever larger reservoir of food was vulnerable to short term disruptions, very serious short term disruptions. In in the 1830s and 40s, it had had less to do with supply chain disruptions than with bad harvests, you know, extremely cold winters, very wet springs, which would either um, ruin a harvest or cause it to rot or might. you might destroy the 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 you know the newly sown plants before they had even um, germinated or matured. There were also blights like the potato blight, for example, which um, you know wrought havoc across uh, much of Europe and nowhere worse, of course, than in Ireland, where um, where it caused absu- an absolutely catastrophic demographic crisis, killing about an eighth of the population. So we don't. When I hope we're not going to see anything on that scale in our own time, but certainly um, the vulnerability of of food supply chains now and the and the growing importance as it seems in Britain today of what's now called in the news food security does suggest parallels with that age.
3: We have sketched out there some of the the, the social hardships that face people during this period. How do you think we should understand the relationship between those social hardships and revolutionary fervour? Is it a direct or simplistic connection?
4: This is one of the really deep questions of 1848. Did did being distressed make people become politically active? You know, in a sense, the first answer has to be no, in the sense that, you know, people have very often been distressed throughout history, and but but large revolutions on this scale are actually very rare. So clearly, the, the correlation can't be that tight. On the other hand, um, there's been a lot of good work done which shows the strong linkage between the the sort of socioeconomic crises, which which... Proliferate in waves across Europe uh, in 1829 to 32, and again in 1846-47, and there clearly was a link. I think that you know, in the case in, in the case of 1848, what you have before the revolutions is a very, a very bad harvest, which eats into the grain supply in 1846-47, that produces. Food riots, uh, uh, price spikes, and um, uh, generalized anxiety in um, in 47. But by 1848, that problem is is starting to restore is starting to go away because the the new harvest is not so bad. What is important, though, is that the crisis caused by that agrarian crisis in the previous year it now begins to eat its way into the manufacturing sector, into small businesses and artisan workshops and so on. And so a lot of people find that, you know, people who've just come out of a situation where they could barely afford to feed themselves, they're not yet thinking of buying manufactured goods. So demand is very depressed. That leads to a downturn in the in the, in the the business cycle. And the result is lots of very anxious artisans, in particular craftsmen, people who work Uh, as weavers, people who make things, are willing to come out onto the streets when there's a political disturbance. So it's that availability of anxious, disoriented people that makes the difference.
3: And what kind of people took part in these revolutions? And did their revolutionary nature come as a surprise to them?
4: I think the interesting thing about the 1848 revolutions, we, I mean, we think of revolutions as as events that are made by revolutionaries. So, you know, revolutionaries think, let's have a revolution, and then they make one happen. That's not how 1848 happened. It may not be how any revolution happens. It seems to me it's much more the case that revolutions make revolutionaries than, other, uh, than, than the other way around. And um, that's at least certainly how it was in 1848. Who made the revolution is an interesting question. I mean, um, in the last you know stages before the actual outbreak of of upheaval, there's a lot of liberal critique in the in the newspapers, and there you could say the people who are making the run running are journalists and people involved in the public sphere. But then when um, when crowds clash with troops, uh, it's the the crowds may may include people of all classes, but but the, but the people who wind up building barricades and actually fighting with the troops are overwhelmingly people of the People who make things with their hands—they're not members of the bourgeoisie. They're not the owners of the means of production. They're more likely to be journeymen, apprentices, wheel fitters, wheelwrights, uh, ironmongers, uh, people who make who make locks, or, or people who work for people who make locks. Apprentices and assistants in in workshops where shoes are made, or, uh, or or shirts, or you know, people who work in factories. Those kinds of people predominate among the dead who we who, whose names we know and whose occupations we can we can reconstruct. From the first weeks of the revolution right across Europe, so it's a revolution that and this is a, an accusation that is soon made by radicals against liberals they say you know we the people made this revolution but you are benefiting from it you, you, you claim to lead it but we're the ones who actually risked our lives to make it so locked into the very be- the inception of the revolution is a is a difficult question about who is making this happen and who's likely to benefit from it
3: you have touched on this is it possible to trace where and when the first moment of revolution took place?
4: I think it is. I mean, contemporaries felt were, were very clear about this. They did feel there was a moment of inception. Um, it was often a rather serendipitous moment. I mean, in the, in the case of, for example, of Berlin, that's a particularly interesting case, the revolution began when, uh, after a confrontation between crowds on the on the Schlossplatz, the sort of big square in front of the royal palace, huge crowds had gathered there, and the mood wasn't actually very negative. They they actually gathered to cheer the king because the king had just was announcing that certain various concessions were being made on, on, under the pressure of a growing protest movement in the city. But but when the crowds refused to disperse. Troops were ordered to sort of disperse the square. And there was a long-standing dislike, a long-standing antipathy between urban crowds and troops, not just in, in Prussia, but right right across Europe. And the crowd started chanting, troops out, troops out, in you know, truppen raus, truppen raus and uh, at this point as uh, some dragoons were kind of moving forward into the crowd on horse- on horseback two of their rifles went off by accident one was was got caught in some part of the saddle or something and it hit the trigger and the thing went off into the air and another one i think was knocked by someone's stick or something neither of them um, neither of the bullets struck anybody but the sound when you're in a crowd you can often not see very much but you can hear And the the crowd often thinks with its ears. And so in in Berlin, once the the sound of these shots was heard, people said they're firing on the people. And from that moment, the situation is out of control. And something very similar happened in Palermo, where nobody knew who'd put it there, but a, a poster appeared saying there's going to be a revolution in a few days. And uh, everybody thought, oh, that's interesting. And it was signed, the Revolutionary Committee. Well, there was no Revolutionary Committee. It was all done by a a young guy called Francesco Bagnasco. He did it as a kind of a prank because he thought, you know, Sicilians are ready to rise up and perhaps this will be enough. And indeed, it was enough. I mean, it was enough at least to bring people into the city because they were curious to find out, you know, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a revolution? Who's going to plan it? And so on. In the meanwhile, the authorities, of course, had also responded, and they'd redoubled and tripled the military presence in the city. So you had the same situation, lots of soldiers, big crowds, and then shots fired. And uh, the next thing you know, the situation is out of control. So they do have a clear moment of beginning, but they're There's often an element of happenstance and almost a sense of self-combustion. I mean, uh, Lamartine, a French liberal who wrote a history of the revolution, said that in the Parisian case, it was almost as if the the curiosity of the crowd who had come to witness an event engendered that event. I mean, that's a paradox, but he felt that that was really, in a sense, what had happened. The event kind of imagined itself into existence simply by the expectation that it would happen.
3: Staying with the fire metaphors, you write that these revolutions spread like a brush fire across the continent. How should we understand the apparent synchronicity of these multiple events happening all at the same sort of time?
4: Yeah, that's really difficult because, of course, this is a, a world in which communications move quite slowly. I mean, there are some telegraphic networks in continental Europe, but not very many. In most places, you know, information has to move on horse or in a carriage or um, in a few places by train. Um, but trains, of course, are very slow. So yeah, how do we explain that extraordinary synchronicity, which is, it, it's so intense that in, in some cases, you know, the, the wave, if we think of it as a wave, the wave of revolutions actually moves faster than we could explain it in terms of the information technology then available. And I think the only way to understand it is that is that this is not, is not to think of it in diffusionist terms. This is not a Parisian revolution, which then has to diffuse across the continent. The, the, the correct unit of analysis is Europe. This is a European upheaval, and you know we shouldn't marvel over the fact that these events take place in different parts of Europe any more than we marvel over the fact that so many different arrondissements of Paris are ready to rise at the same time. In mean, Paris is also a complex ecosystem, and so is France and Berlin and Prussia and so on. So, in other words, um, what we're looking at here is lots of upheavals which are cognate in a in the same culture of growing resentment of of government authority, growing willingness to challenge authority, increasing the eloquent liberal and radical leaders whose whose voices can be heard in the press, and causes célèbres, you know, celebrated causes, famous advocates for liberty who are now in jail, for example, whose names are mentioned everywhere at dinner tables and parties and soirees and so on or news that someone's be, that, that someone died in an inter- altercation with troops in in a city these things become the kind of news that feed indignation and outrage and so you've got this mood of growing growing resentment and and readiness to to act. And you've got focusing devices, which turn this general sense of malaise into a focused objection to particular policies and particular ways of behaving. And then, of course, on the the back of that, you've also got this phenomenon of broad, you know, broad stroke, large stroke, um, social and economic distress.
3: When you say focusing devices, what kinds of things are we talking about there?
4: Well, you know, articles which are saying, um, you know, we need a constitution, or why don't we have a constitution? Why don't we have a parliament? You know, there's a very famous article by the the, the Konigsberg-based radical, Johann Jacobi, and he, he, he addresses the king and he says, you promised us bread. We asked for bread and you gave us a stone. You know, suddenly you have a, a phrase, you know, we asked for bread and you gave us a stone. Um, becomes a kind of winged word of the re- of the revolution in the in the state of Prussia, Greifenburg being one of the eastern cities of Prussia. The press in 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 France runs this annihilatory campaign against the, the July monarchy, against the monarchy of Louis-Philippe, you know, in which the king is often figures as a sort of obese, pear-shaped creature. I mean, in fact, even the drawing of a pear suffices to focus um, laughter on the person of the king. So he's, you know, just simply the outline of a pear. In fact, one of the most famous cartoonists, famous for, for having developed this pear metaphor was arrested for les majestés and appeared before the court, of, the court of peers. And in the course of defending himself, he actually took a sort of flip chart and drew a picture first of the king with his features and so on, and then another one of a fewer features, and finally all that was left was a pair. And he said, "You can see, I'm not drawing the king; I'm drawing a pear. If you make my cartoons illegal, you will have to make you will have to prosecute all drawings of fruit." Now, this was a fantastic prank, which you know made him the most popular man in Paris. But it's an example of what happens when when a war breaks out between the media and, or, and political authority. And, you know, there comes a point where that war can no longer be won. And the, the, the avalanche of, of ridicule and laughter is just too much. And laughter is a very hard thing to overcome.
3: Did people at the time look at what was happening and feel a sense of continent-wide kinship?
4: People felt intensely connected. And this is one thing that's very interesting. And it's important to remember about 1848, because in, in the aftermath of 1848, the, the memory of it was captured by the nation states. The French turned it into a French 1848. As, as, you know, the, the Germans t- turned you know, their so-called failed revolution into one of the milestones of a specifically German journey, which would end with 1933 and the, the, the horrific episode of the Nazi dictatorship. Um, and, and all the states did this. There's a very strong national Hungarian national memory of the 1848 revolutions, even now as we speak. And the great Hungarian patriotic leader Lajos Kossuth is often on the lips of um, Viktor Orbán and of his um, and of his spokespeople, especially when the when the memorial dates come around in the in the annual political calendar. So, you know, 1848 was remembered as a series of distinct national revolutions, but it was experienced as a European revolution, and people felt connected because. If you look at the newspapers, you know, in the spring of 1848, before the revolutions had broken out, they are reporting routinely on political tumults right across the continent. So if you read, you know, a newspaper in Bucharest, for example, or in uh, Romanian-speaking Transylvania, in in what was then the Kingdom of Hungary, um, you can find reports on what's happening in Switzerland, the, the tumults going on in the Italian cities, the news of the revolution that's just broken out in Palermo, now in Naples, and so on. So there's a sense everywhere that this thing is a European phenomenon, and it is its momentum is growing with every passing hour.
3: And with these images flickering in their heads of previous revolutions, did people at the time see themselves as historical actors, as history being a force in this story?
4: Absolutely. In fact, that's the thing that I think is really most distinctive about 1848, and makes it quite different from 1789. And that is that, you know, this is a world where, well, first of all, it's a world where where you know revolution is not happening for the first time. So anybody who looks at what's going on around them can immediately map it onto a, a, a template of memories from previous tumults and most important the most important being the French Revolution. And that journey of the French Revolution from a liberal revolution that creates a constitutional monarchy in the early 90s through to the Jacobin dictatorship of 93, 94, and then the coup against the Jacobins, the Thermidorian coup, which creates this weird thing called the directory, which lasts for about five years, and then swept away by the arrival of Napoleon that sequence is is in everybody's heads, at least in, in people who are, have some measure of political education, right across the political spectrum. And so everybody knows how to read the sort of twists and turns of contemporary events against this great historical script. You know, is it conforming to the script? Is it departing from it? And so on. So that's one sense in which they're thinking historically. But you know, in general, history is the is the discipline of the 19th century. Everything has become historicized. People think about music in an historical way. They look at art in an historicized way. And they think about their present as the unfolding of history in the present. So history is no longer something which is locked in the past. It's something you can actually, you can see its wheels in motion in the politics of your own time.
3: By the time we arrive in the summer of 1848, I think I'm right in saying that some forces had emerged that slowed and complicated the path of the activity of these revolutions. What were they? And I suppose how extreme or how violent did things get?
4: Well, I mean, um, not everybody was happy about the revolutions. And what we often see is that in, in the first instance, uh, the revolutions are bafflingly successful. I mean, it turns out to be much easier than anybody thought. To, in the case of France, most of all, where the after a few days the king simply leaves the country, and um, all his ministers are removed from office and uh, from public life, and you have a provisional government which completely which replaces the old system. But even in a place like Prussia, where the where the the, the the monarchy remains in place, the king is obliged is forced to introduce new figures into his government, the so-called March ministers. The same happens in the Austrian Empire, in the Italian states, and uh, Nap- the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, and even in the Roman, even in the 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 papal states ruled by Pius, Pope Pius the But This setback, although it feels at the time like a a major, for some people almost, for some sovereigns, almost traumatic setback and humiliation, it's a short-term setback, and once the, 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 the shock of the original revolution of the first you know, insurrectionary moment has passed, These the old powers start putting their heads together and thinking about how to claw back the ground that they've lost. And this, the first place where this happens is, is Naples, where in May 1848, the king finally, uh, having um, prepared himself, you know, very very carefully in advance, finally seeks a particular moment of conflict with the with the revolutionary movement in the city of Naples for a showdown and basically reimposes authority after a very bloody, um, you know, exchange of fire between troops and and insurgents manning barricades in the city. So the in, in a sense, one could say, you know, the revolution and the counter-revolution are born at the same time. And that's the, the complexity and the ambivalence of 1848. It isn't just that, you know, revolutionaries break onto the scene and secure all power to themselves. The revolutions are not shaped alone by the will of revolutionaries. The revolutions are shaped by a complicated and often very fractious process of sort of wrestling and negotiating and between you know new and old powers.
3: Are there any sort of key figures or key forces in the counter-revolution that you think perhaps don't get the attention they might otherwise deserve?
4: Well, the interesting thing about the counter-revolution is that it turns out. I mean, it, it, and this is part of the weirdness of the of the narrative shape of 1848. That you know, in spring is this, you know, just deliriously successful and swift seizure of the high ground of, of political power, and you know, the the revolutionaries themselves can't believe it. They're they're walking around completely. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Stunned, gobsmacked, polaxed, whatever. Um, They can't believe it was so easy. Um, They feel like they're walking on air. The difficulties then begin to multiply, partly because they don't agree with each other about what they want to do next. And there are differences within the revolutionary front. There are differences between liberals and radicals about what they think the revolution is. Liberals by and large think the revolution is an event. And once it's happened, you know, you stabilise. So the revolution's happened. Thank you very much to everybody for everything you did on the barricades. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your efforts. Uh, We're now going to, you know, leave it to us, go home. There's nothing more to see here. We will, you know, create a constitution. We will uh, convene elections in the parliament and everything will go on. And we'll have, you know, we'll, as it were, bind the revolution in ropes of law. But for the radicals, the revolution is not an event, it's, it's, it's a process and this process has, scar- has scarcely begun when the liberals begin their constitution making and their parliament electing and so on. And they feel in great danger of being left behind or excluded by the liberal revolution. They think, you know, the liberals will get what they want, but but we, with our demands for a fundamental restructuring of the social order or a rebalancing of the relationship between labor and capital, we're going to end up short-changed. We'll end up with empty pockets. So that's already a, a deep a sort of bitterness and distrust at the heart of the revolution, which is, which is a serious impediment to its success. And at the same time, of course, the counter-revolution can see this perfectly well. And the counter-revolution starts making concessions to this interest or that interest uh, in the hope of playing the different groups off against each other, which they do really with quite some success.
3: So is it these twin forces, one within and I suppose one without, that slowly bring these revolutions to a halt?
4: It is, because because the counter-revolution turns out to have you know, to have cards up its sleeve that people had forgotten about. One is that the that the armed forces, by and large, the story of the armed forces in Europe is that they remain loyal. And so what the what was impressive about the revolutions, and you mentioned before their synchronicity was was their network structure and their capacity to act as a network and to build networks which are transnational. and the the apparently simultaneous outbreak of these movements, you know terrified the old powers when it first happened. But, you know, networks are are great as far as, you know, as far as they go, but a network doesn't have – these networks don't have armed forces. They don't have the ability to deploy or to focus armed force, whereas the hierarchies, the tower-like structures – of the of the old regime do, do have uh, obviously chains of command which are quite clear and loyal militaries. There are a couple of examples There are examples of soldiers who who defect to the revolutionary side, and there, in the case of the state of Bar- the Grand Duchy of Baden, for example, quite a large portion of the army goes over to the revolution. But that's the exception that proves the rule. By and large, armies remain loyal to their traditional sovereignties, and they are a crucial instrument in counter revolution. But there's another thing, another dimension to this, which makes the counter-revolutionaries very happy in the first instance, and that is that when they um, when they sort of you know, mount their counter-attack against the revolution, they find that they have more more support than they could have imagined among the little people who were left out of the process of the revolution. This often means people in the countryside. One of the trouble, one of the um, shortfalls of the revolution was its failure to make itself known and understood to a large part of the rural population. And so what we see in France, for example, is as the energies of the revolution are ebbing in the metropolis in Paris, when the choice comes, you know, who do you want to be the president of this republic? The, the votes of four million peasants go to Bonaparte, to Napoleon III. They want an authority, an authoritarian figure who's going to impose order. They're not interested in the experimental politics of radicals or even of liberals in Paris. So it's a, a paradoxical picture that you know um, that leaves the the conservatives with a with a something actually resembling a kind of myth. It feels true at the time, but it's not permanently true. Namely, the idea that the little people in their hearts are all conservative. And this is a claim that conservatives still make today. You know, if we if you go out part, outside the bubble of the tofu-eating wokarati, you know, you find that lots of healthy, normal people who haven't been radicalized by whatever the, this or that, um, and who basically support conservative objectives. Well, that turns out actually not to be the case. Um, in the longer run, it's going to be possible for, you know, um, socialism, for example, to, to score great successes among rural populations. But for the moment, in 1849-50, the conservatives are so their latecomers to mass mobilisation, do look as if they have the upper hand. Given the
3: fact that by the summer of 1849, the revolutions were very largely over, is it fair to see them as a failure?
4: The, the, the question are they a failure or not has has haunted this this whole um literature the whole literature on 1840 and the question of how to understand it i don't think failure is a very helpful term one can break that down into a sort of more general point and a more specific one i don't think it works firstly because if if we, we don't ask when when we hear that there's been a huge snowstorm we don't say was the snowstorm a success or a failure you know was the was a solar flare a success or a failure we 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 establish that it happened and we measure its effects and it seems to me that you know, of course, one might object to that, well, come on, I mean, a, a, you know, a revolution is not a natural event. It's an event made of intentions and and will, political will. But the problem with that is that whereas individuals may have particular intentions, which may or may not be disappointed, and may or may not fail to be realized, a revolution doesn't. A revolution is, is at least the 1848 revolutions were a dissonant orchestra of wills and intentions which actually can in many cases cancelled each other out or pointed in different directions. So there was no will or intention which failed to be realized. There was a an immense roar of dissonant demands. And that, I think, means that to say the revolutions failed is probably not terribly helpful, because they they clearly failed for some people. I mean, people on the on the left felt this, uh, you know, w- were saying that they had failed already by the by early April 1848. They felt they'd already lost the lost the race. But for for many others, it was a success. I mean, in many of these countries, 1848 produces parliaments. For example, Prussia had no parliament after 1848. It has a parliament with elections, regular elections parties start to form within this parliament. There's a a public political culture around the publication of parliamentary protocols. The same thing happens in Piedmont in Italy. The revolutions create new institutions and new political cultures, which don't go away. The expansion of the political print, which comes about as a result of the Um, of the revolutions, the immense expansion of the number of newspapers, that doesn't disappear either. So there are lasting changes. And I think that that's the sort of more particularist reason for saying that failure falls short as a way of thinking about these revolutions.
3: So they did have long lasting effects in in the nations where they took place?
4: Profound effects and long lasting ones. I mean, without eighteen forty eight you can't understand why the unification of Italy and the unification of Germany, the unification of Germany took the forms that they took. They are both shaped by the events of eighteen forty eight. Eighteen forty eight also helps you to explain why Italy and and Germany are such different kinds of state when they emerge as nation states. Germany, a very federal state with lots of different reserved rights in the hands of the individual member states. And Italy, a completely unitary state in which the whole of the peninsula is basically captured by Piedmont and its political culture. So these things can can, can only be explained through 1848. And there are numerous other examples. And I mean, finally, one shouldn't forget the people who formed advocacy coalitions. I mean, socialism is born as a, as a political force in 1848. And it doesn't, it's not like it goes away. It becomes one of the most success, biggest success stories in European politics by the end of the 19th century. And a lot of the people who lead socialist parties and so on in the 1848 revolutions, or not not that there are parties, but a lot of the leading socialist exponents of socialism, of various forms of socialism, they don't go away either. And there are main activists, and so do the women who mobilize against patriarchy and form feminist networks, in 1848. And so did the nationalists and the the exponents of Jewish emancipation. All these networks, once formed, stay in place and continue to be active.
3: It's a slight tangent, but one nation where this didn't happen was Britain. Do you have a sense of why Britain didn't have a role in this story?
4: Yes, that's an interesting question. I remember at school, I went to school in Sydney, Australia, and I remember at school the teacher telling us you know well britain didn't have a have an 1848 revolution because britain was so liberal people already had the freedoms they needed and wanted and uh, there was no need for the uh, revolutions that they had on the on the continent, and that, of course, was the view also taken by many self satisfied Britons at the time. They said, "Well, of course, your your, Brit, your Britain is already a free man. Why?" they were talking about men, of course, not about women. But he said, "Why? Why would they be bothered you know setting fire to someone's house when they've already got everything they could possibly want?" Well, that's not how I see the eighteen forty eight revolutions in Britain. First of all. Britain does have an 1848 revolution. Just doesn't have one in the in on its mainland. It has it. It basically it franchises out the conflict of 1848 by by cutting the price of um, of staple goods on the mainland at the cost of planters and um, and you know. For example, sugar-producing communities in the Caribbean and elsewhere. It also, and this produces tensions in places like Jamaica and um, and and Ceylon, which um, in turn then produce um, movements of protest in those in those countries. I mean, there's a massive protest movement in Ceylon in 1848. 60,000 people are caught up in this massive revolt, which is about the uh, the British effort to. to to increase taxation in Ceylon in order to cut cut the costs of Ceylon to British taxpayers and avoid a tax rise. So in other words, counter-revolutionary, British counter-revolutionary measures actually produce protests and revolts in other parts of the world. And uh, then there's the fact that we, of course, in Britain, we have one of the largest movements of protest in the world. That's the Chartist movement, an extremely well-organized and, and sophisticated movement. But of course, the reason why you know, there, of course, one could there's big literature about this, and in which I'm not particularly expert. But you know, one thing that is striking about Britain is how well policed it is, and how robustly policed it is. And when the chartists you know, get together on Kennington Common in April 1848, they face a massive force of special constables, many tens of thousands of special, special constables, all armed with cudgels, and so on. So, you know, um, what you could say about Britain is that it, uh, is, a, it is not so much that it's, its liberality prevents a revolution, as its capacity to mobilize counter-revolution from within its own society. One last thought or two last thoughts. One is that Britain had for some time, especially in troublesome areas like Ireland, been transporting people who seemed likely to be troublemakers to places like the Cape Colony and to Australia. And in fact, this habit of transporting, uh, you know, people who were regarded as troublemakers to the the imperial periphery had already produced kind of, you know, protest movements in Australia and in the Cape Colony, which then come to fruition in 1848-49 and in the years that follow. So that's another factor. And, uh, there's the, 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 and, and, and finally, uh, it's not the case that Britain doesn't see a revolution anywhere because on the Ionian protectorate and the, the, the Ionian islands, which are under British protection at this time and occupied by Britain, uh, under a special protectorate arrangement made in 1815 as part of the Vienna Congress settlement, the British do face in 1849 uh, an uprising on the island of Kefalonia, which is a typical agrarian revolt of the 1848 type. And in that context, they react with exemplary brutality, with lots of hangings and floggings. And they respond more or less exactly as their Austrian and uh, Prussian counterparts do. So I I really would like to kind of come away from the notion that, you know, that, that the story is told if we simply say Britain was too liberal to need a revolution. It's a bit like parents who say, we're so nice to our children that they'll never, even as teenagers, they'll never revolt against us. We're too good. Do you think
3: there's any meaningful comparisons to be drawn between this revolution and others in history?
4: Yes, I mean, revolutions all, they, they do have certain, um, f- there's a family likeness that that attends all situations where, you know, the governed suddenly decide that they're no longer afraid of the governors. That's, that's the, at the core of all revolution is... The, the fact that something ceases to be there, which was there before. It might have been invisible, but it was there before, and that is fear. They cease to fear the authorities. And the, that that, that uh, abeyance of fear may be a very short thing, but, uh, but it can be deeply uh, consequential. And so um, that's something they all have in common. The question is sometimes asked, you know, how does 1848 pan out alongside the great iconic revolutions like the revolutions of 1789 and the revolutions of 1917 um the russian revolution and so on and you know it's, you, one could say, well, if you look at 1789 with its and the profound changes that happened on the continent, that's on a scale which we don't see in 1848. The the continent still looks more or less the same in terms of its political map. It doesn't last nearly as long. Um, and then if you look at 1917, which creates a new sort of one a new kind of state which you'd never seen before, a one party state which becomes a superpower in the form of Stalinist and later you know Soviet Russia. Um, After 1945, well, that's consequential in a way that 1848 isn't. But it seems to me that that 1848's consequences—we have to look at, at different places to see how 1848 is changing things. We have to look at how language shifts, at how advocacy networks emerge, at what happens to the history of women's advocacy, the advocacy of uh, the advocacy around questions for of you know the emancipation of the jews from their negative from their dis- special civil disabilities the um, formation of nationalist movements the emergence of new nation states the history of the press these are uh, because this is a revolution that broke out in peace not in war and so its effects were not magnified by the movement of armies across Across, the, across continental spaces, as the effects, you know, whereas if you think of 1917, that's unthinkable without the First World War. And you think of 1789 to 1815, that whole period is, you know, uh, trans- has, uh, you know is transformed by um, war on an unprecedented scale. But 1848, 49 there are some wars, but the wars are policing actions to put the revolutions down. They're not generated by the revolution itself. And that means that this is a revolution that, that is wearing civilian clothes it's travelling in mufti and that means that its effects are going to be more subtle but that doesn't make them less important
0: that was christopher clark revolutionary spring fighting for a new world 1848 to 1849 is out now published by alan Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.